The next case on our docket today is the state of Florida versus Johnson. Mr. Chief Justice. I'm sorry, maybe wait a minute while they exit. Please, uh, please, if you're leaving, please leave. We need quiet in the courtroom so we can proceed with the next case. Give me a second here. All right, I think you can proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Kim Acuna for the state, and I've previously reserved five minutes for rebuttal. This case is about the Melbourne analysis and preserving a claim of error after a race-neutral reason has been provided. In this case, when the state used a peremptory strike on, on a prospective juror, Mr. Garvin, a Melbourne objection was made, a race-neutral reason was requested, a race-neutral reason was given, a race-neutral reason was found, and the trial court upheld the strike. At no point did the defense counsel question the state's reason in any manner. At no point did defense counsel request a more specific finding or otherwise advise the judge of any noncompliance with Melbourne. Before the jury was sworn, the defense counsel indicated that he could not accept the jury because of his, in part, his previous Melbourne objection. After the defendant was found guilty and appealed, on appeal for the first time, he alleged that the trial court did not comply with Melbourne because it did not conduct a genuineness assessment. In a two-to-one decision, the fourth reversed and remanded for a new trial, finding the trial court did not comply with step three of Melbourne, that the majority concluded the claim was preserved and the record did not indicate or support an implicit finding of genuineness. Judge Kuntz dissented and would have found the claim was not preserved. The fourth did certify conflict with three other cases, Brown out of the fifth, Ivy out of the second, and Hannah out of the third, because they adhere to the analysis in Spencer 1, that preserving a claim of error after a neutral reason has been provided, you must make um, an explicit claim of pretext. The state asked this court to resolve the conflict, quash the decision of the fourth, and hold that once a neutral reason has been provided, an opponent of a peremptory strike must challenge that proffered reason as a pretext for impermissible discrimination to preserve a claim that the trial court has not complied with the Melbourne procedure. And I'd start with referring to Melbourne itself and the two key principles in Melbourne, that peremptory strikes are presumed to be exercised in a non-discriminatory manner, and that the burden of persuasion throughout the entire process remains on the objector to establish impermissible discrimination. That burden of persuasion includes making an express claim, and therefore, if an express claim of pretext has not been made, then the claim is not preserved. And what I'd like to do is, is walk you through what happened here. Okay, a Melbourne objection was made, so the process was begun. And from beginning to end of that process, the objector had the burden of persuasion. 
The objection was made. Race-neutral reason was requested. Trial judge, do you have a race-neutral reason? State, yes, judge, I have a race-neutral reason. Mr. Garvin preferred CSI evidence. I find that to be a race-neutral reason. Strike is upheld. Now, the objector wants this court to come down here and review these, this, what happened here at the end, at the end of this process, that she didn't do it right. But when the reason was given, it was presumed to be genuine. It's presumed to be non-discriminatory. That's a hurdle that comes up, and he's got the burden the whole way. He, he looks at that hurdle, and he walks away. He says nothing, right? But he now wants on appeal for you to review what happened here. But if his burden includes ex making an express claim a pretext, which a plurality in Spencer too, also said, you have to make an express claim to carry your burden. If you're reviewing claims down here, it's not, you're relieving him of the burden here, and you can't do that, because the objector has it the whole time. They have to overcome that hurdle, that presumption. So to review a claim here, it has to be preserved let me, here. Let me ask you this. So um, the United States Supreme Court has left it up to the states to to come up with procedures that implement the protections afforded by Batson, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and Johnson case is very interesting to me. In that case, um, the U.S. Supreme Court was looking at, at California procedures, which are very similar to um, the way the federal courts handle it. In other yes. words... Step one is higher. Step, step one is the point at which the person who's objecting has to make a prima facie showing of discrimination, right, at step one? Yes. Okay. And so that's how the burden is initially met. Now, it seems to me that in Florida, we've eliminated that burden at step one completely. All, all that the um, opponent has to do is to, to point out that this is a per person of a protected class, correct? Yes, Your Honor, okay, in Florida, so, so, it's so very the Florida low. procedure gives no burden of persuasion with respect, with respect to discrimination at step one, correct? I mean, correct. Yeah, because if they say this is a protected class, then a race-neutral reason has to be given by the, the proponent of the strike, correct? Yes. Okay. So essentially we're talking about um, whether there is going to be a burden of persuasion at all, because if we, if we don't require it at step three, then we, we, we eliminate the burden of persuasion altogether. And, and that's essentially your argument, right? Correct, Judge, that, that once that reason is given, it triggers him having to rebut it, having to head on and rebut it. And he doesn't get relieved of that at any point after that. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so here the record conclusively shows that a claim of pretext was never made. So under the reasoning of the fourth DCA's opinion, the objector's failure to respond to the reason at all, failure to make his record, has been transformed into error by the trial court. And based on Melbourne itself, can't do that. Applying the presumption and the burden, you have to hold him to his burden 
at that point. State is also relying on basic appellate law that you have to make an argument below before you can raise it on appeal, and the purpose of that is notice. You have to put the judge on notice of what the claim is so the judge can address it at the time that it can be addressed. So um, the state would refer the court to its opinions in Floyd, King, and Hoskins, cited in the briefs. And based on the reasoning of these cases as well, objector's claim was not preserved. Two components of that reasoning are notice to the trial court and addressing whether the trial court has any responsibility to develop the record. So in Floyd, as I'm sure the justices recall, a, a state exercised a strike, race neutral, re you know, objection was made, state gave a, a neutral reason of, I think he said 25 years was the maximum, that, and it was a death penalty case. And um, trial just said, I don't know what he said, but the record will show what they said. And the defense said nothing. So then on appeal, like in this case, for the first time, they say, oh, that, that reason was wrong. You know, that's not supported by the record. That juror never said that. But the trial court was never put on notice that it was disputed in any way and, and had held the strike. And this court said, you had to put the court on notice. You don't put the court on notice of there's a dispute, then, then you haven't preserved it. So it's the same reasoning here. And, and essentially those are the same things. I mean, there are two things that happen. When, when if, if we shift the prima facie showing to the party that has the burden of persuasion to step three, if they do nothing, they haven't put the court on notice, so that's the preservation problem, but they also haven't made any showing whatsoever. They haven't made a prima facie showing of discrimination, correct? Correct, so, Judge. Okay. Or just I understand you correctly. On here, yeah. Uh, a defense in this case it was defense counsel. Uh, made the objection. Yes. Made the objection. He raises the fact that the person the prosecutor is challenging is an African American. Yes. At that point in time, you know, done this a thousand times as a trial judge. Then you turn to the prosecutor and tell him, okay, I, I make a finding that it is a a member of a identifiable class, uh, an African American. What reason do you have? Excuse uh, me, the jury. Just, uh, the prosecutor here told us or told the court. Uh, well, he's he prefers he will he'll give more credence to CSI. And anybody who's been a trial judge knows nowadays that's a major problem during board because people are watching all these shows and and they think that. Uh, uh, they think that the police can just get out, the CSI people can just do anything that, uh, that the TV the says they totally can. totally agrees. So, uh, <laughs> so we, I've been there, uh, done that. So the, the prosecutor, is what judge, he says he's going to get more credence to CSI. And at that point in time, what you're saying is that, that uh, if the defendant, defense counsel, doesn't explain more, like, okay, uh, judge, uh, what other reason can there be? I mean, he's, he's doing it not for that, he's doing it for this other reason. Uh, unless there's that, then it has to have been preserved. Yeah, it has to have been challenged as a pretext right. for so, discrimination. So he's he's going to have to show the judge that the CSI reason is not the real reason. Correct, and That's there's a multitude of ways that can be done. You know, judge, 
these other jurors, they were questioned about CSI evidence, you know, and, and they're not African-American. And, I mean, this was still a, earlier on in the striking process, but the state had exercised to strike, you know. But, but, the, but the prosecutor could have done that. I mean, in this case, of course, the judge cut the prosecutor off in the middle of his explanation. That's not helpful. Uh, but here, the prosecutor could have said, you know, Judge, uh, the reason I'm excusing this, 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 this person is because he is going to make me prove all these CSI stuff. Uh, uh, and uh, I've asked the same question of every single juror because that's important in, in today's climate, given the TV shows and so on and on. Uh, the prosecutor could have done that, and, and, and that would have been the explanation. That would have been the end she, of it. She could have, and, and I, you know, whether she was cut off or not, it's a record. We don't know if she trailed mm -hmm. off and the judge just went on with the process, continuing it, you know, from the cold record, we don't know. But we do know conclusively that the defense said nothing. They but as far as the last step, as the judge making the finding that, that is genuine or not, I mean, we have people on the bench, judges, who supposedly are experienced enough to kind of sense when somebody is not being genuine, being disingenuous. Uh, shouldn't that be afforded? Uh, isn't that what we have judges for? Uh, you listen to the prosecutor and have the prosecutor for the first time, and I mean, I'm just speaking hypothetically, say, oh, it's CSI. That's the reason I'm doing it here, judge. Can't the judge say, well, that's just bull. I don't know why you're doing this. Is it not what judge is supposed to well, do? Well, it's not on the judge to make the record. And I mm -hmm. think that's the point of Floyd and the other cases, Hoskins and King. It's not on the judge to huh. carry the burden for the objector to take him by the hand and say, I'm going to walk you through your objection. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Hoskins, um, that was the disparate questioning case. And for the first time in appeal, they made that argument. And this court said, no, you, you didn't bring that to the judge below. Um, King, it was the similarly situated jurors. And for well, the first time on appeal, bring that how argument. Do you, how do you respond to the argument that this Melbourne type of questioning by, uh, are similar in nature to like a Richardson inquiry or perhaps uh, somebody raising the fact that the defendant is not competent? And then, you know, at that point in time, that's, that's out there. And, and you can't really continue until that's resolved. It, it, and I, know, I know the, um, the majority here made that comparison. Um, I'd first, you know, point out, you know, just on their face, peremptory strikes, uh, discovery violations, competency, you know, they're very different things by nature, very different. But and. Let, no let me other. ask you one other question. Okay. Um, do you think it would be better to fix what I view as a problem with Hayes by placing the burden at step one like they do in the federal courts? In other words, you, you can't just throw out there that, that this person is a, in a protected class because, I mean, gender is a protected class, everybody's in a protected class, yes. and then if you, if you had to make some showing in step one, it would inform the judge at the very beginning of the decision that has to be made, you know, that you would have to say, this looks discriminatory because, you know, they, they, this is the pattern, this is what, whatever the, the minimal level would be necessary under Johnson, would that be a better approach than the way we've done it in Florida, which is essentially shift the burden of persuasion 
or the, bur the burden of coming forward with a prima, prima facie explanation of discrimination to, to step three. So going to a federal standard in Florida, right. would that be a better approach? Right. Yeah. We didn't really brief that issue. I know. <laughs> um, Maybe you can address that in rebuttal. I'm sorry. Okay. Is it, isn't I, one benefit of the Florida approach, though, that it allows the other side to hear what the reason is before accusing someone of having engaged in discrimination? That's a very good point, Justice Muniz. <laughs> and um, and here again, it, it was a very good good reason, and and it's very possible that maybe he didn't recall that, but. Yeah, that Mr. Garvin had that preference for CSI evidence, and he just acknowledged, okay, and walked away once he heard it. But to quickly, I, I know I'm in my rebuttal time. Um, as far as competency hearings, as as being a, a comparison to what's here, I mean, competency is um, is such a fundamental nature, right? A, a person, if they they can't consult with their attorney, they can't understand the charges, it goes to the fundamental fairness of the is whole. It, is it what? Juries, uh, but jury selection. We, you know, court. This court's held issues can be waived. It's, it's, it's not at the same level. And the uh, um, other thing I was pointing out is no other court. I mean, Richardson competency has been around forever. No other court has ever made these kind of comparisons because I don't think they're they're comparable. And and I will reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, Richard G. Bartman from the Office of Criminal Counsel on behalf of Giovanni Johnson. This case is really about noncompliance with a mandatory obligation by a trial judge to conduct a step three inquiry. It's not about preservation. It's clear from both the federal courts and the Florida courts that a trial judge has a mandatory obligation once a claim is made of discriminatory strike to conduct a mandatory but inquiry and where, to conduct... Where, where here was the claim of a discriminatory strike made? Where was the, the, the prima facie... The, well, the, the claim is made, at least under the procedure, step one puts the court on notice that they have to conduct a full well, integrated not, not process. Under, not under Florida law. Under Florida law, step one is just uh, alerting the court to the fact that, that this person is is a member of a class, which Would, could, sorry, could be a woman, gender, in, in, you know, any protected class, correct? Which places the court on notice. It's an integrated process. It doesn't just stop at step one. There's a three-step integrated process. It's not piecemeal. The court's on notice. The, court, the courts of the state have been on notice for 24 years what that process is. And under Hayes, at what point does the um, opponent of the strike make a prima facie showing of discrimination? Well, at, at what, what Florida requires is just as you described in terms of getting the process started. It's, it, it is a reduced standard, and the reason for that is we don't want to um, obscure the importance of step three with procedural hurdles that are unnecessary, and that's some of the rationale that's, well, that, that runs through all of these cases. But the, so, uh, the other primary thing is under, under Batson, under Melbourne, Florida, there, there's no court that disagrees that the um, Peremptory strikes are presumed to be used in a non-discriminatory manner, correct? Correct. And there is no court that disagrees, Florida or federal, that the burden of persuasion as to discrimination remains with the opponent of the strike throughout the process, correct? Correct. But there's okay, also but you're, you're suggesting that there's a reversal where the proponent, the opponent of the strike, has said nothing. 
No, what I'm suggesting, Judge, is this should be a reversal when the trial court doesn't conduct its mandatory obligation to conduct what is the critical step of evaluating whether discrimination has occurred. Whether or not there's been any prima facie showing of discrimination, you think? The process, at least in Florida, is step three. There was no step three in this case. Where was the opportunity for the opponent to meet his burden of persuasion? He didn't get it. There is no step three that was conducted here, none. No, but the reason there wasn't a step three is because the defense counsel didn't rebut what the race-neutral reason was. I would respectfully disagree, Your Honor. The reason there wasn't a step three is the trial judge stopped at the race-neutral stage and didn't go further and ruled on the strike. What opportunity there? The courts of the state have said there has to be at least an opportunity. What prevented counsel from saying, no, that's pretextual? After the ruling has been done, we're now going to impose waiver on a situation where he now is on to the next panel in terms of strikes, and now he has to think not only about the next panel but go back and think about objecting to what the court has already ruled on. I think that sort of imposes somewhat of a chutzpah burden on an opponent that would be grossly unfair in this situation. There's no real opportunity, and all the courts in Florida have said there has to be an opportunity for an opponent to meet the burden of persuasion. That occurs in step three. If the trial court forecloses that, where is it? Isn't it also a foundational principle, though, that when a trial court has made an error that counsel has an obligation to preserve it, to bring it to the court's attention? Where in the record did counsel here say, Your Honor, you're under an obligation to do this step three. You didn't do it. Let me tell you why this is pretext. With his initial objection, which imposes upon the trial judge a mandatory obligation to conduct that step three, and with his re-objection where he cites the Melbourne and says, I still have a problem with this juror and how the strike was made. And that is how the court gets notice, and the court at that point, the trial court's on notice to conduct all aspects of Melbourne, the most critical step of which is step three. Without that, we have no meaningful procedure. Just to be clear about this, because the whole function that we're looking at here is making a record that we can look at. What is wrong with, let's say we follow the normal process here. Judge, I hereby object to the parentage challenge because the person he is challenging is an African-American, Hispanic, whatever. Once that's done, the judge turns to the prosecutor in this particular case and say, okay, court finds that he is a member of a class, and I want you to give me an explanation. And the person says, well, Judge, he's a CSI thing. What is wrong at this point in time? Once the prosecutor offers the explanation for the parentage challenge, the CSI explanation, what is wrong at this juncture with requiring defense counsel to explain to the court why that's not good enough? That would answer all the questions. Well, Your Honor, it seems to me that's what the step three process is for, and we didn't have a step three process because it was foreclosed by the trial judge. But it requires the court to do that. Why not require the defense counsel to explain it? Judge, that's not good enough, and then get into some kind of dialogue as to why it isn't good enough. Because as Justice Kavanaugh just said in Flowers, it's the trial court that enforces this obligation because of the history of discrimination, because of the variety of constitutional interests that are at stake that go to the integrity of the process of courts itself. If that were altogether true, then we would have an independent obligation on trial judges to object to peremptory strikes. 
we leave it on the opposing party to raise this issue. But the essence of the inquiry, Judge, is this genuineness inquiry in step three. That's what makes it meaningful. That's how we promote and protect so, the constitutional rights involved, and that's how we fight the evil of racial discrimination, which attacks the integrity and fairness of the courts itself. So it's under, under Florida's procedure, the process is initiated by an observation that the person is a member of a protected class, and then the, opponent, the proponent of the strike is asked to give a, a neutral reason, gender neutral, race neutral, whatever. Correct. And, um, and at that point, the reason is given. If it is neutral, then it is presumed to be non-discriminatory, correct? But all that establishes, Judge, is just that, that fact. So, really so we have, all, all, we have, all we have now is a, bird, a, a party with the burden of persuasion that it's discriminatory. The federal courts leave that burden on the opponent of the strike. It never leaves the opponent of the strike. We have a neutral reason that's given that is presumed to be non-discriminatory. If the trial judge, if the, if, the other, if the opponent doesn't raise anything to indicate that it is discriminatory at that point, and the judge doesn't see anything, what's, I mean, that, that, that should end it, correct? Judge, I think we're confusing the burden of, of preservation with the burden of proof, and that's what occurs at step three, the burden of proof. There is no step three that occurred here. She just stopped the process at neutrality, and all neutrality establishes is, is facially race neutral. Genuineness doesn't even become relevant unless and until the trial court um, fulfills its mandatory obligation to conduct the step three inquiry. She stopped. She never did that. It's clear on the record there was never any any genuineness inquiry, which is where these what, questions are answered. What does Floyd say about that? Doesn't Floyd specifically say that at that point the opponent of the strike has to come forward and question? The burden of persuasion applies at step three. What, what, I don't know. We're talking about step three in Floyd, where the court said that that's when the opponent of the strike has to come forward with a, a reason as to why that that's but not a valid and it's, reason. It's an appropriate step three inquiry if there had been a step three inquiry. There wasn't in this case, Your Honor. There was no step three. She ruled on the strike without ever reaching the essential critical step of Melbourne. And, if, and it, without that step, we have no meaningful procedure to promote the, the incredibly significant constitutional interests that go beyond the litigant and the party that attached to the veneer person, that, that, that involve the community at large, that, that the community can have confidence in the fairness and integrity of the process. It, it goes it to the seem, core. I'm sorry, Ron, go ahead. It doesn't seem right to require the trial judge to complete the objection on behalf of the defense. Justice Labarga's example, we have situations routinely where evidence is offered for admission, the judge says denied and will not allow it in, and then there's a proffer of evidence for the record to be considered on appeal. So the objection is preserved and you move forward. So it does seem incumbent upon the defense lawyer in this situation to do more than what was done. If, in effect, there is a step three, if you eliminate step three, if, you, if that no longer takes place, in other words, if the trial court's obligation to conduct that inquiry, that genuineness inquiry, becomes optional, it is, in other words, it's not mandatory in every case, you eviscerate the procedure. 
You, you completely eviscerate the procedure. Where would the trial court then? There is no trial finding. There is no trial assessment. There is no well, tr the, the thing trial is, court determination the, 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 of the whether the strike was genuine. The trial judge's function it, it comes at the end as to whether the, uh, the explanation given is genuine or not. Uh, but before we get there, as I mentioned before, the prosecutor says, I'm excusing the juror because of the yes and CSI thing. At that juncture, as I suggested before, why not turn to the defense counsel? And the judge said, well, do you find that explanation acceptable? And the defense counsel says, no, judge. Why? Because of this. And once the defense counsel provides that explanation, and perhaps the prosecutor rebuts, then the judge steps in and makes a final decision as to whether, you know, I don't believe you, prosecutor, or whatever. Uh, Your Honor, that views the, the opponent's burden as a precursor to step three, it seems to me, rather than as a component of step three. And it ignores the fact that the trial judge initially is the, is the, is the party responsible for enforcing the, the protection against discrimination in peremptory challenges. It is the trial judge's obligation that the trial judge is notified by, by the initial objection, and that's part of the procedure that, and the essential critical step by which the trial court evaluates that. If you, if you impose an additional procedural hurdle before we ever get to step three, and in cases where we didn't have a step three, um, that, that essentially means step three is no longer mandatory, and if step three is no longer mandatory, we don't have a procedure, we don't have a process, and we're back to square one, we're back to before Batson, we're back to before Melbourne, as the Miller L case, the Supreme Court 2005 said, if the step two process, if the end of the step two process is a sufficient answer to the question, we're basically back to the days of Swain, where we don't have a procedure that the judge is obligated to enforce. Isn't the it, judge never is required to conduct that evaluation. That's the critical step here. Isn't it inherent in the judge's ruling that he found the explanation to be genuine? Is it, is there's, there's absolutely no language about genuineness here. If we, if, again, if we just, the, there has to be some form of inquiry, um, evaluating the circumstances, applying the factors. He ruled, the on, he ruled on behalf of the state. Isn't it inherent? He ruled on behalf of the state as to neutrality. That she did. She was very clear. It just related to neutrality. There was never any, never any language or reference to any aspect of a so genuine. So the judge has to say the words genuine. No, well, what the judge has to do, the record has to reflect that the judge did that kind of evaluation in some way. That they, that it seems inherent in the ruling. It can't be inherent in the ruling if there is, that process didn't take place. And, and the only ruling was, I find it to be race neutral, period. And never, so she was under the impression that, that I only have to do the first two steps. There's no step three. She didn't do a step three. So and to comply, at the end, the judge would have to say, uh, I find that the explanation given by the prosecutor or the defense counsel uh, to be uh, race neutral. And that, well, that, that accomplishes the genuine stuff. Well, the judge actually has to conduct the inquiry. That didn't take place here. And that's where all of these questions well, become well, let, me, let me ask it this way. So okay. if, if you agree that under Batson, the U.S. Supreme Court's left it up to states to come up with a procedure prote to protect the rights that are at issue. Yes. Okay. And you understand that at the federal level and in some states, there's a, the burden of coming forward with a prima facie case of discrimination is placed at step one on the opponent of the strike, correct? I don't necessarily agree with that, Your Honor, because I think the Well, Johnson, I mean, it, it, that's what it's talking about. That's but, what it's but, but Batson and Flowers just said the trial court is responsible and has a mandatory obligation to conduct this inquiry, including step three. Federal courts follow that as well as the Florida courts. 
They, okay, they, assuming I'm correct, that in Johnson and in other cases, the, under the federal law and under California, the burden of coming forward with some prima facie showing minimal of discrimination is on the opponent of the strike. If we put that at st step three, would that be a problem under the United States Constitution? Would it be unconstitutional? I, I think we have it at step three, Judge. That's no, we that, not. That's no, where the genuine is. Well, you're saying relevant. that we don't. You're saying that we don't. That the opponent of the strike doesn't have to say anything at step three. No, no. I'm saying step three has to be held where the opponent is held to the burden of persuasion. He has to be given an opportunity to meet that. But it doesn't occur prior to step three, is what we're saying. Step three is where that takes place. Step three is where it becomes germane. Genuineness doesn't become relevant under the under Melbourne and under the federal cases until step three is done. And it's the essence because the tr that what the courts have said, both federal and Florida, is that the trial court is, is responsible for enforcing all of the constitutional rights which are so significant and for keeping racial discrimination out of peremptory strikes. It's not the objector's responsibility. I mean, well, if, if the opponent of the strike says nothing after the facially neutral reason is given, then why haven't they accepted it as genuine, just like it appears that they did here and appears the trial court did. I mean, they, they have an obligation. They have the burden of persuasion. It's not the judge's burden of persuasion. So if they accept it and say nothing else, why isn't that an acceptance of the genuineness? Well, it, the trial court would still have the obligation to maintain, to find whether, in fact, it was genuine. In other words, we can't equate. It's not, neutrality is not synonymous with genuineness. You do want a magic word test. You want him to say the words. I want the, no, I'm looking for the procedure to be conducted. There was absolutely it no procedure. It seems like it was conducted. How do you, uh, it seems like it was conducted. How can it be conducted when, if, Your Honor, with all respect, the, what was conducted here was step one, step two, period. That there was neutrality, that's as far as the trial judge went. But genuineness is where all of this becomes relevant, and that never happened on this well, No, but it, you're, it seems like the logic of your argument is that you're fundamentally challenging the premise that the burden of persuasion is on the objector. Because according to the logic of your argument, it seems to me that once step one happens, then you could have a situation where, the, in this case, the prosecution gives a facially race-neutral reason the court could turn to the defense counsel and say, what's your response? The defense counsel could say, I have no response. And according to the logic of your argument, unless the court then itself independently tested the genuineness, that would be error. That is the procedure we have, Your Honor. That is exactly what the judge does have so, that obligation. Which means there's no burden of persuasion on the objector. It just means that there ought to be an inquiry. The trial court should conduct it. And as a component of that inquiry, which did not take place here, unlike Spencer, there is no such inquiry. As a component of that inquiry, the, the opponent has the burden of persuasion. But not beforehand, and not as a matter of preservation, as a matter of persuasion. I think if you apply Spencer, you're creating a situation where, you, where, where the failure to object becomes a burden of preservation. You never get to step three. Step three ceases to be mandatory, and step three then ceases to, to have any meaning. There is no genuineness inquiry that has to be conducted if it's not mandatory, if it's optional. As Johnson and other cases have said, the entire process that we have in Melbourne will erode and die. We won't have a process of inquiry, a process of assessment by the judge, considering all the relevant circumstances and the factors that are involved. And that just simply didn't take place on this record. So we're just saying step three is where this burden of persuasion is imposed. 
This particular defendant never got that opportunity because step three never got conducted. The defense lawyer should have said, Your Honor, may I present explanation of why I think that's not a race-neutral reason? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with requiring that further inquiry by the defense lawyer? Because all that relates to is neutrality, and neutrality is not the issue. It goes, it goes to the step three genuineness. Your Honor, I have reasons I'd like to present to you why I believe that's not genuine. I have reasons why it's neutral, and that's, that's, it seems to me, Judge, that's conflating step two with step three. She only did step two. She only determined neutrality. Neutrality but, but, does but not... The, but the, okay, you know, we, you slice this and dice this, but the point is... The judge said what she said, mm -hmm. and then the defense counsel said nothing. Well, and and I think the point is why why shouldn't the defense counsel have to say, hey, uh, more respectfully than that, Your Honor, uh, 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 respectfully, you need to do this, and I object that this has not happened. Whatever it is, mm -hmm. why, why? I mean, that's the way things work in court. When and and that's what we. That's how objections are preserved. That's how we have a process where we, where the the trial court ha uh, has the opportunity to address concerns, um, rather than it being brought up on appeal and when a whole trial's got to be redone. Um, and and I I don't understand why that's such an unbearable burden for the defense to have in circumstances such as this. Because, Your Honor, just simply because the trial court is the one responsible for enforcement. And also we have, we have a, a preservation requirement and mechanism. It's called joiner. It's been imposed for 20 years. And the defendant in this case fulfilled that. When you give notice initially, the trial judge has to do genuineness. When you re-object, there's no indication there on this record how we have to apply reason and common sense under Melbourne in applying these rules. How can it be fair to impose waiver in a situation where he, where the defendant um, invoked the procedure, including step three, re-objected at the point as, jo as joint address, and then never the, got an opportunity? The whole idea of preservation in general is that the trial court has to be apprised of the specific grounds for an objection in a timely manner. And that's, I mean, you can talk about all this, but when you get to the nub of the matter here, that just wasn't done. Now you're saying this ought to be treated differently for various reasons, but I'm, I'm struggle to understand why placing that burden on the defense to preserve an objection um, timely and specifically as is required throughout the process of a trial is somehow an unbearable burden in this particular context. I don't, I don't like get that. Like discovery and competency, the notice that's given to the trial judge to do that genuineness inquiry is to fulfill step one of Melbourne, like discovery. When there's a discovery violation, we don't say that you have to re-request the court to determine procedural prejudice. In competency, we don't say that there's some additional requirement or hurdle. The judge has to go from start to finish and include and assess all of the steps of the given procedure, which are known and have been established for decades. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Your Honors, the state maintains this is about preservation. Okay. Step three is alive and well, but whether the life of you know is long or short of step three is going to depend on the objector, not the trial judge. 
The objector is the one making the objection, has the entire burden of persuasion. And this defense attorney, he had ample opportunity to make any arguments he wanted. This was early in the, in the process, and he ended up requesting an, an extra peremptory. He used all ten of his peremptories, and then he requested another one. He wasn't timid with the judge. If he had an argument to make, he could have made it. He chose not to. Okay? And, the, and it can't be put as error on the trial court that a reason was given, a very good reason, as you said, CSI evidence. This ju judge also had additional information that the state had accepted two women, uh, two women who were African-American that the defense struck. That happened moments before. If you look on page, I believe it's 790 of the record, of, of the Supreme Court record, when this strike happens. On the next, on the page before that, she had accepted those jurors. Defense had struck him. The trial judge knew that, she, and the prosecutor pointed that out. We know that in the record, okay? So the judge had that information, and then there's a presumption of non-discrimination. So everything before this judge was, this was genuine. And it was up to the defense attorney to make an argument if it was otherwise, and he didn't. He didn't do anything, okay? And this is... It, if you follow what their reasoning is, it's a gotcha. It smacks of gotcha. It's, it's like this judge who was presented these the set of undisputed circumstances makes a ruling, and then on appeal for the first time you say, oh, you didn't do that right. You didn't do it right. So you get a new trial. And that, that can't be. I mean, state refers the court to Melbourne. You know, the right to the impartial jury guaranteed by the Constitution is best safeguarded not by an arcane maze of reversible error traps, but by reason and common sense. But, you know, and I, again, I, I sympathize with what you're saying, uh, but Melbourne's been around for quite some time. Uh, trial judges know what they have to do. This judge knew what she had to do, and she cut the prosecutor off. If she hadn't done that, perhaps we wouldn't be here. So there's a, there's a procedure. You may want us to recede or change it, but that's the way it's been. Uh, judge didn't follow it. Well, Judge, state, state maintains an alternative. There was an implicit finding based on all those circumstances that I, I went through that were undisputed, and then she made the ruling, and it can be implicit. It doesn't have to be an express finding of genuineness. But regardless of that, for all the reasons I pointed out before about the operation of the Melbourne principles, about the reasoning of Floyd, Hoskins, and King, it's on the objector to make their record. It is not on the trial court, and that's preservation. So if the court doesn't have any other questions, state requests that you quash the decision of the 4th District. All right. We thank you both for your arguments, and the court will now stand in recess for about 10 minutes. <laughs>